Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Alex Clark. He's the CEO at QP. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at QP is really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Absolutely. So I grew up uh, in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, so in California. Interesting. Okay. So walk us through your childhood a little bit and what got you passionate about technology? Was there a defining moment or, or how did you get interested in it at a young age? You know, I think for me, um, I always had, you know, I think people's in general minds work well in different ways. Some people very creative, artistic, and some more techie and analytical. And I sort of straddled both sides when I was young. I wanted to be a cartoon animator. I really loved drawing oh, and I loved uh, watching cartoons and, and that whole creative process that way was, was really, really cool. But at the same time, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, uh, tech was always a prominent part of that, that culture in that area. So I just naturally worked on computers, wrote software at a young age, played around with it as a hobby. Um, and didn't really think of it and was always thinking along the lines of cartoon animator. But as I was growing up and going through school, cartoon animation was going more and more technology and, you know, computer-based. So I was kind of in a position of thinking of what the heck I was going to do with my life. And uh, I briefly thought about uh, aerospace engineering. Um, Interesting. Uh, which was my major in college that I got accepted to. Uh, and that was subject to, you know, kind of political whims of whether agencies got funding or not. And I thought, well, that was a little bit maybe feast or famine. Uh, so would I get into maybe uh, more academic and do astrophysics? I always loved that. So talk about a big departure from cartoon animation. But totally. the one thing that <laughs> the one thing that was kind of central to all of those themes was this technologies computer programming software part of it where either it was affecting cartoon animation or aerospace engineering or astrophysics and it wasn't really until i don't know when i was getting towards the end of high school and and maybe maybe partly into college i was kind of like uh hey duh you're in the middle of silicon valley in a boom of software tech you've been doing it as a hobby you love it and it's funny because a lot of times when you do something as a hobby for so long, you don't, it doesn't occur to you to make a living out of it. It's like, oh, that's just the thing I do for fun. Right. Um, but then, yeah, but then I, I started getting into it and saying, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't I do this as my profession? And so I just ran with it from there. Very cool. So walk us through your career up until QP. Um, my, I had always set a goal for myself as I was going through it. I think I started my first software job. Well, it was definitely in my early twenties, but maybe it was like 21 or 22. Um, right. and so 
I was living on my own at a fairly early age and decided that I was going to stay in California, even though it was really expensive uh, and worked a lot of jobs to do it and started getting into tech, but still putting my way through school. Um, but as I was doing these software jobs in, in early positions as, you know, quality assurance and junior programmer, I kept finding I would have to drop out of courses because I was just getting so busy at work. And then eventually decided that I was just going to focus on work because enough time had passed and set a career path for myself. And I wanted to do the typical ranks, uh, you know, junior software programmer to intermediate to senior to software architect to chief architects to chief technology officer and then to having my own company. And I wanted to follow that trajectory and hopefully have a successful company uh, and exit it by 40. And I was fortunate enough to actually pretty well follow that timeline. Um, almost exactly. I think I exited my last company at 38. Uh, was chief technology officer by 27 years old. So a uh, pretty aggressive trajectory, but I was uh, you know, able to achieve it, which was nice. Very cool. So why did you want to just like kind of keep climbing step by step? Because I think a lot of people, at least these days, kind of want to be CTO right out of school. <laughs> I think for me, I, you know, I, I did get to enjoy a lot of the dot-com boom. Um, okay. So that was, you know, kind of, a, you know, a really good market, a similar market where you could say, hey, I've now graduated college and I want to be like CTO. <laughs> um, but then I also got to experience the bust, which was really interesting dichotomy. It was, you know, in, in the boom, if I wanted to switch jobs or was even just curious, I'd put my resume up online. You'd have phone calls just flooding your phone within two hours and I'd have to take the job, my resume off. I was just getting too many calls. Wow. People would double your salary. They go, because they were all fighting for just people. I, I remember right. a few jobs I got. <laughs> One of them I got without even being asked a single question. Uh, it, was, it was funny. I, they, they were in the middle <laughs> of a meeting, reviewing some tech. They just asked me to patiently stand there and kind of listen. And I was getting all geared up and excited. And I was like, okay, I'm ready to answer these really tough questions. And at the end of the meeting, they're like, um, so do you have any questions? And I said, well, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm ready to begin the interview. And they're like, oh, well, when can you start? I was like, what? So it was a really different <laughs> environment. And then after the boom, the bust was like, you put your resume out and you didn't hear anything. Uh, you know, you were one of 300 resumes that the employer got and you were somewhere near the bottom. They never even looked at you. So for me, it was important to have the experience and the growth trajectory so that I had the experience for myself to be competent and qualified in those jobs. Like, I don't think I could have been a really great software developer if I didn't sit on customer support calls and really totally. hear from the customer's perspective where they got stuck and where they got frustrated. And same by working in QA, it was a great experience because I really learned a met uh, the methodology for testing software. So having the customer experience, the testing experience made me a better engineer, which made me a better architect, which made me a better chief technology officer slash leader slash evangelist, what was really what that role was, to then have a really good skill set for starting a company. Interesting. No, I 100% I agree with you. It's like, I've always kind of felt you don't realize how important experience is until you have experience, which is kind of like a weird thing to say because I've obviously been on both sides of that. Um, and it's, you're right. It's you just going through those levels and kind of grinding it out and, you know, being in the trenches, building stuff as you move up, 
really helps you down the road later on instead unless in case instead of getting just thrown into being cto right and obviously there's successful people that you know just come out of school start a cto and sell companies it's just sometimes it's like they miss some of the like grind and and some of the low level stuff sometimes i found in my experience anyway i think i think yeah i think you're really right and i, I love the way you word it right it kind of takes experience to know sort of what experience you don't have um mm -hmm. And so I, I always found it for me anyway, maybe there's people just super gifted and just, Hey, graduate college, like you said, and, um, they're ready to just lead and build a company and it, it takes off and that's, that's great for them. I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have had even the confidence at the time to do it. I always yeah. sort of would check in on myself and be like, I don't know what I don't know. So I better figure this out. No, totally. So walk us through uh your companies and a little bit more detail into some of them because you, you sold the company to ge digital do you want to walk us through that yeah so that was called uh, uh bits do systems uh certainly had an odd name but uh the name worked <laughs> out for us in the end um and so when i was working for a previous company a startup i'd always done startups i liked that fast pace that was what suited my personality very well um, sure. and i liked that i could do a lot of different things um, in that kind of environment so always done startups was working for uh, another startup and recognizing that for the platform we wanted to build uh, which was was kind of cool looking back because it was akin to uh, nfts are today it was just maybe 15 years ahead of its time um interesting was you know as we were building the platform we were using software off the shelf or open source software and really having trouble scaling um, with with the data integration problem and trying to connect different systems as we built out you know really uh, an event-based architecture that could scale to really high volumes of users and so what i did was i I, I really love writing software. I, I still do to this day. I mean, it, to me, I, it's like playing video games all day. I could just sit down, write software, be happy as a clam, right? And for for this company, I, you know, as it kind of got stuck, I, I was sitting on a kind of like a weekend, just sort of wondering. I thought, you know, there's got to be something out there, and I'm not finding it. What if I just prototype something very quickly? And I threw something together super fast in a weekend, um, and it started to kind of work and relieve a lot of the bottleneck and pressure on the on the software we we're building. And that got us through for like a year because um, it was really wow. just thrown together very fast. But then I thought a year later, I thought, you know, what if I build kind of version two of this, make it a generic platform and productize it and see if anybody likes it. So I did. I spent nights and weekends um, putting it together, not didn't tell anybody uh, at the company, because for me, it was super important that if it was adopted and they picked it up and liked it, it was on the merit of the software, not on my reputation at the company. Right. right. Interesting. Okay. So when I finally had it ready to go after about a year and a bit um, of developments, I remember telling the team, we had a really good offshore team um, that was amazing at finding obscure software or poking holes in existing software. So I just okay. kind of passed it out to, to the team and said, look, I found this software. It looks interesting. I don't know much about it. Don't have time to look at it. Can you guys review it and let me know what you think? And turned out they were really positive on it. They really, really liked it, wanted to keep using it. Um, and so it, it got popular in the company. And I remember telling uh, the CEO of, uh, of 
that company. I said, uh, and he said, it looks really interesting, the software, but it looks like it was done from a small company. We're worried about it. And I said, well, don't worry about it. I actually wrote it uh, nights and weekends. <laughs> um, and I said, look, I know it was nights and weekends, um, but it was still kind of, I was employed by you guys. I'll give it to you for free. Just want you to sign the license agreement, basically handing over the rights to me, making sure that it was no conflict. And the CEO um, was was a really good guy. Uh, and he's like, you know what? No, you did the work. I'll pay you for this uh, as, a, as a proper commercial agreement. Um, wow. Just put together some proposals. And that was the first customer. Very cool. Okay. So walk us through... Uh offloading that to GE and then coming up with the idea for QP. Yeah. So as we, as we evolved Bitstew and, and what it was, was started out as a, you know, integrating disparate systems um, and connecting different things. And then we got into the utility space um, by a connection through BC Hydro, which is a local utility company in Vancouver. Um, and, you know, we kind of looked at the problem set and they, they had all these smart meters they're rolling out and we said, well, Hey, this is, this is like data integration, but instead of between five or six computers in different systems, treat it as 1.8 million systems. It's just bigger scale. And my background has always been in real-time systems and, and these parallel compute architectures and, and artificial intelligence. I always loved those fields. And so to me, it was just like, hey, this is a great problem. So we grew it in the utility space, um, started bridging into connecting different systems in different uh, verticals like oil and gas, uh, and other industrial places got connected with uh, General Electric because they kind of saw what we were doing in some of the utilities that they were either competing with us on for projects or maybe working together with us on. And they got really interested in, in a particular concept that we'd put together, which was sort of out of necessity. As we were integrating all these different systems, it takes a lot of time to map and connect the data. So I stepped back and I said, well, what if we could use artificial intelligence to do this stuff for us because what happens, right? You, you hire somebody, you show them the data sets, they ask a bunch of questions from the experts, they tweak it, they tune it. And by the time they finish their first customer, they know a little bit more about the data model. They do another one and another one. And by the time they've done the fifth one, they're experts in it. And that's kind of what learning systems would do in AI. So why don't we do that? And that really intrigued GE and they'd already seen our previous success in the space uh, of the utility space. So they decided that it was a really good fit for acquisition. And as the rumor goes, the name Bitstew actually helped us because uh, the story we were told was that uh, Jeff Immelt, the, the chairman and CEO at the time, was in a briefing meeting, a list of companies. And, you know, during that meeting, kind of the, room, the rumor I was told goes, he, he pauses and he says, well, hey, wait a minute. Why? What are we doing in this meeting? What's the objective? Oh, we want to let you know the companies we've invested in. He goes, oh, that's a weird name, Bitstew. What do they do? And I said, well, you know, the integration, the AI, it helps out with this. And he said, well, sounds pretty interesting. Uh, you know, we sh why don't we just buy them? And I think he was making sort of a flippant <laughs> comments, uh, but they went, yeah, okay, sure. Let's, let's explore that. And that went from there. Very cool. So walk us through coming up with the idea of QP and what exactly is it? Yeah. So after the exit from uh, General Electric, I had an interesting position to be in. Um, and it's sort of one of those things that, you know, after having bit stew for 11 years and you always chase that exit, like, oh, build the company and all totally. these, the pressure and the stress. And then <laughs> suddenly you get the exit. It's like, oops, I didn't really think of what to do with my life after. Now what? 
right? <laughs> did you take some time like, off at least? I did. I took uh, about two years. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Kind of wow. Really awesome. chill out. Um, and I never would start a company uh, because after it sold uh, to GE, it was a, it was a, a large exit for British Columbia. I think it was the largest tech exit, tech exit in 10 years. Wow. So Congrats, man. that's great. Well, thank you. Yeah. And so what happened was we made some press and, you know, I would maybe do some speaking and so forth. So I got kind of known locally in the tech space. Um, and people would come up to me with a lot of ideas and, Hey, let's start the next company. Let's do this. I got an idea for you. I got an idea for you. And there were not, you know, some of them were good ideas, but if it wasn't something I could immerse myself in and do every day, all day, I would just right. politely say no. And, you know, some of them, like, for example, if somebody said, Hey, we've got this really great algorithm for logistics software and they tell me about it, I go, actually, that's really smart, but I just don't know what to do with it. So good luck to you. <laughs> and so, and I would never start a company to say, okay, I have to start a company. What should I do to me for, for my self? That's the backwards way to do it. I think then if you do it that way, a really big danger is you invent a problem. And inventing a problem isn't great because then you release to the market. The market goes, yeah, we don't really care. Um, but one thing I noticed was when I was messaging with people in different groups and connecting, I was using messaging a lot more than email, a lot more than phone calls, a lot more than anything else. In fact, as I looked into it, you know, it's the number one way people communicate around the world, messaging on mobile, right? And right. I was looking at the fundamental problems with it. Uh, first of all, my, my public information was out there. So I'd be in group chats and my phone numbers freely available in the group chat. And then suddenly people have my phone number and they're messaging me like, Hey, I've got a business idea for you. Or, Hey, can you listen to something? Maybe I need some funding. And I'm like, okay, that's, you know, the friend of a friend and I'm somehow connected in this group chat, but uh, now I'm kind of obligated to <laughs> have this conversation. Man, this isn't good. Why is my personal information out there? This makes no sense. And simple things like sending a message and you, you know, you send the message to the wrong person or you do a typo and it looks unprofessional or it's embarrassing or whatever. And go, wait a minute, that's my message. Why don't I own it? Why do they own it? As soon as I press send, it's out of my control completely. And that really started the foundation for QP. It was a way, it was really looking at how we communicate with technology in particular messaging and saying, okay, you know, when WhatsApp came out, which is now you know, the most popular in terms of number of users. When WhatsApp came out, it was really free SMS over the web. Phones were becoming data enabled. And it has those history, that history that was underpinnings, right? It's all phone number based and it's very kind of rigid in what it does. It evolved over time. And a lot of people copied like Telegram and Viber and they all did this stuff, but nobody really stepped back and say, wait a minute, how do we communicate with tech? What is it really looking like? And how do we want to represent ourselves to other people through technology. And that's really where QP started. Okay, interesting. So how has it evolved over the last little while into what it is today? You know, one of the biggest things about QP that I was really thinking about in terms of privacy and how we put it in there, and actually Karen helped out with this idea. This is really great um, when, uh, you know, she's uh, been, been an expert to bounce uh, to bounce ideas off of uh, in the early days in particular um, was this concept of privacy not just being about hiding information and hiding phone numbers. Um, it's 
about how we control the data about ourselves that's out there. So a really big feature that I you know, wanted to put in there was this concept of multiple profiles or multiple personas, because a big problem on WhatsApp and other platforms is, you know, it, it says, okay, set your profile picture, do a status, and then, you know, tell us who you are and you're off ready to go. But the problem is my profile picture and my status depends on who I want to see it. If it's friends and oh, family, yeah. I might look one way. If it's work, which a lot of people are using messaging for work now, I'm going to look a different way. So what picture do I pick? Well, it's the least offensive to all of them, meaning it's me in a suit probably, but that's not how I want my yeah. friends to see me. Maybe I want a vacation pic, right? Or something oh, that's more yeah. sentimental. And so really this whole encompassing thing of privacy was like, wait a minute, how do I control my data that's out there? And a big part of QP was setting that type of persona, branding myself to my chosen audience and then choosing who can have access to me. So it, it's not phone number based. There's no single identifying code. If somebody wants to get to me and connect with me, sure, if we have each other's phone numbers, no problem, it's like before. But if we don't, how do we connect in a private way? And then it sort of evolved from there saying, well, wait a minute, access to someone is valuable. Um, so if I wanted to connect with you, for example, you know, you being an expert in your fields, you might say, well, yeah, you can connect with me, but..." doesn't have to be for free. I'm going to give you advice, message and interact because that's all how we naturally communicate anyway. Everybody knows how to share media of any kind over messaging and everybody knows how to chat and communicate over messaging, whether it's texting or video calls or that quick access. So why not charge for it? And that naturally led itself because the foundations we had early on to this really unique value proposition in the market, which we found has done a lot of you know got a lot of excitement for us because if you want to connect to your favorite creator or person uh and you want something different than the standardized content they're putting for the masses on instagram or uh you know facebook youtube wherever where do they go and how do they do it and qp was so perfect for that because from the uh, consumer's perspective i can now get access to somebody and they're content that they want to share with, with me that's a little bit more customized for me. But I can also message them with if they allow me to, where I can't really do that on Instagram. Yes, I can message and DM, but if they've got 100,000 followers, how am I going to get through the noise, right? Yeah. And from the creator's perspective, it was great because they're like, wait a minute, I can subdivide my audience. I could actually charge for my content, which has value, but also for access to myself. And, you know, from that, I can now connect with an audience in a more meaningful, authentic way that goes beyond the mass, right? I can still build my mass over, over on Instagram and the other ones, but when I want to direct a certain audience to get that more meaningful, deep connection and actually monetize my work and creativity, QP became the perfect platform because it is how people communicate. Quick, sh quick short sound bikes, messages. You know, people don't want long Zoom calls or audio calls and to invest that much time. They want that quick interaction, that quick satisfaction and then to go about their lives again. And when something comes on, they want that. And messaging was the perfect foundation. It just required a different way of thinking about how we communicate with technology and how we share media and access. Interesting. So you're basically creating the future of the creator economy. For people that maybe don't know that term, do you maybe wanna give us a quick overview and, and how you guys are evolving um, and, and building up this kind of new creator economy? Yeah, the creator economy is a really cool thing that has evolved as social media has itself evolved, right? And just a quick overview, if, if, if we set the stage and say, okay, 
if we look at the the beginnings of social media, right, the, the version one, so to speak, uh, which is a bit tough to say, everybody has their own different version one, but for sure. the purpose of this discussion, <laughs> version one being like Facebook, uh, Friendster, and MySpace was, right? And that was all about connect totally. to your inner circle. Friends, family, coworkers, all connect and come together, message and share, perfect. The next phase, version two, you had you know Vine rise up and Instagram rise up, and that really encouraged people to connect outside their social circle. And from that, people had a platform to share their creativity with an unlimited audience, which is super cool, right? Because now, you know, you turn, you unleash the world's creativity on these open platforms for them to do it, and they can rise up and become powerhouses in and of themselves. So these creators then start to build their own brand and become their own enterprise. Right. The next phase of that, though, the, the natural evolution of that, um, which is what we're seeing right now, and this is that creator economy, is how do you decouple that, that creative talent, those creators, from a centralized platform, which has all the control, which has a very different business model, which doesn't benefit the creators directly. So what I mean is Facebook really being the pioneer of this, and I can't fault them. They were the first uh, really to be so big and Instagram and to really pave the way. Um, so their natural model was, hey, with all these eyeballs, let's sell ads, right? Sure. Makes sense. Yep. And that really kind of, you can do an analogy of like cable TV, right? You had media being put on this platform. The more popular the media, the more followers and eyeballs, which meant the better ads you could sell. And Facebook needing to get more and more revenue at, for its shareholders and its share price, how do we get more and more ads? So they would change the algorithms, creators would post content, but it wouldn't go to all their followers because Facebook is determining what content goes where so they can sell more ads, right? The problem was the product for Facebook was people's data for the advertisers and Facebook is great at keeping its customers happy. Problem is the customers aren't the creators or even the consumers, it's the advertisers. They're the ones who pay Facebook's bills. Yeah. So the creators are now going, wait a minute, I'm on the central platform. I'm doing all the work. I'm taking all the risk. Your algorithm keeps changing. You're taking all my data. You're taking my, my audience's data. You're selling it without really our permission or not. Well, I guess permission is implied by the license agreement, but it's not really obvious. And that model is now inherently broken because the advertising model is always going to have to serve the advertiser. The creator is the product. So you need to keep them just happy enough to keep creating so that you don't lose the eyeballs and so that you can keep uh, selling it to your customer. And as the creators have gotten more and more power, they're going, wait a minute, I don't need to sit on this one single centralized platform. I can go branch out to other platforms and my audience will follow me. So that's where we naturally come in and this whole creator economy comes in. How do they basically run their business is what they're doing. They're making really good money. They're very smart. They're very savvy, very creative. And how do you know, they get these platforms that empower them to just run and do full-time what they want to do, right? It's no longer just a side hustle of I'm taking cool pictures somewhere and I'm making some money if I hold up the right sneakers at the right time, right? Right. And that's also what happens, which is a negative product of this advertising-based model the creator then has to, as they get more and more popular, they have to then generate more revenue to make a living. So they start sacrificing the authenticity of their posts 
by saying, hey, I just went on an amazing hike and I really love these Nike sneakers. And everybody knows that you're advertising. So your audience kind of is almost punished by your success because the more successful you are, the more ads you have to sell, the more ads the audience that followed you and was believing in your authentic opinion and voice is now seeing a little bit more ads creep in. And so they're looking for ways to connect to the creator directly and get that authentic, true self from the creator. And the creator is looking for ways to say, look, I, I need to make money because I'm being creative. And why am I giving all my money to Facebook? Why can't I have this, this thing? And so really what we, what, what I love is this whole concept of decentralized social media. And that's what we support, which is how do we turn each individual creator into their own social media platform and let them make all the money uh, because they're doing all the hard work. So the best analogy is then we kind of become, if, if Instagram and Facebook and YouTube are the cable TV where it's standardized content ad based, we're more like the, the Netflix or the, you know, the HBO Showtime premium model where there's no ads, no selling the private data, no, none of that stuff. Just you connecting to your creator, getting the content you want and the creator accessing the audience they want. Very cool. So if somebody listening is a creator, how do they get started and walk us through creating an account and, and, you know, starting to connect with, uh, people that want to follow them and, and, and maybe pay or, or accept, or want to, you know, talk to them or leverage some of their services or whatever they're looking to create. Yeah. And it's a really good question. Cause I get asked that a fair bit. And some of the, even the creators are like, Hey, should I just, do I have to, are you guys competing with Instagram or in, and Facebook and YouTube? Do I have to cancel those? And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> First thing I would recommend, um, you can always start on us if you want. And some have said that they're so tired of the algorithms changing on those other platforms. They just want to be in control, but it's not necessarily what I recommend. What I recommend is you build your audience up on those, those very public mediums. Uh, and then they, they're like your starting point, like Instagram and so forth, your starting point. And then once okay. you have a significant enough audience, we're the end result, right? That's when you turn your audience into buyers can really support your creativity directly, or just offer something premium and different and subdivide. So the best way for them to really get started is just, you can go to qp.me or you can, you can go to the app store and you can download the app, register. You can reserve your username right now. Um, so we, we've found that we are uh, getting a lot of traction and a lot of people excited to use it. So um, we got more people signing up than we expected. And so to kind of awesome, keep the systems from falling over and from exploding, we've said, okay, we're gonna kind of lock it down a little bit and start to control the flood of people coming in for the best experience so we don't crash our systems and we can let people reserve the username and we'll get people on board as fast as we can as we grow. Um, so that's the best way to do it is really uh, download the app, reserve the username, and then creating content on us is incredibly easy. It's it, The nice thing about kind of being a mix of, of all the popular messengers with the popular social media platforms, is that's what we are, is nothing is really unfamiliar. You really just register, get on the platform. If you're looking to create content, you just head over, create a channel, set your price if you want it to be paid or not, um, and start posting to that channel. And then you take the, uh, the link to that channel and the best way to get known is just put it on your link tree or your whatever you've, you've got in your link in bio. Um, on your social media platforms and direct your audience to it. Very cool. So I'm curious because obviously there's a ton of social media platforms out there. And, and I think what you guys are doing is actually really innovative in the space, 
but do you have any advice for people that are maybe trying to grow their social network? Because you guys are obviously successful at it when you're having this backlog of people that want to get on it, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of our success, I think, has been the approach that we've taken, which is different from any other I've seen. And so we're, we're effectively trying to make two markets very happy. One is that creator market that can create content and make a living off it, but also that consumer market that is like, hey, I want access to people. I want a better communication experience and really turning everybody into creators and going, wait, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'll create a channel just for coworkers and family, or maybe I will start publishing content and just seeing what's happening. So we kind of had a unique offering that seems to really hit the mark. And that is, we've been able to blend that social media inner circle connection with the messaging and communication and chatting with friends and family and workers and being able to set my persona to my audience of choice and just being a better messenger with privacy and kind of the cool features that I wish all messengers had. Um, and that's been really, really popular in itself. A lot of people are like, hey, I'd use it just for the messenger. But also blending in and bringing in that outer, that outer circle of the creators. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. Not only am I connecting with my inner circle, but I actually want to reach out to my outer circle um, and start discovering creative people. But because of the unique offering of our platform and the way that the creators can maintain their privacy and subdivide their audience, and I can connect with them that outer circle starts getting brought into your inner circle. And it's like, wow, I've got this favorite right. person I've been following. They're producing some awesome stuff. Now I'm actually connected with them on a, on a personal level. I'm getting content I want. I can actually chat with them if, you know, if they allow it on their channel and I've you know, paid for it or not, whatever. And so now this, inner, this outer circle is starting to become my inner circle. It's blending together. And that really creates the stickiness of it. Other platforms, I have to like kind of download that platform and say, okay, I'm going to open this app because I want to see what this creator has done yeah, and I've subscribed to them. And then I see something cool and I close that app and I go to my other app and I start talking to my friends and like, did you see this? It was really neat. And QP, it's all blended. I see something amazing and I go, hey, you should check this out. This is a really cool channel and that promotes for the creator side. But then my friend might go, oh, that's really awesome. And ask them how they did that. And I can just ask him and get a response. And then suddenly this whole blending comes together. And I think that's really the value that we can offer and that the market is really wanting. So for these other platforms out there, I mean, that's really it is just adding that immersed value and that stickiness to really blend it all together for what, what people really want. Very cool. So did you guys raise money? Did you self-fund? Walk us through that. The idea, yeah, so uh, I had the idea for it and put it, uh, started creating a prototype actually back in 2017, because I had to think of messaging a, little, a lot differently. Right. Um, you can't just, you know, there's a reason WhatsApp can't just pivot and do this and others can't. You have to totally. really redo yeah. privacy from the foundation. And I thought it was a good idea, but it doesn't mean anybody else would have. <laughs> right. So... <laughs> After Bitstew, I could have funded it myself completely, but I didn't want it to be a vanity project. And I was already sold on it because I was building it. And I have this belief that you can go out and tell people what you're doing and they'll be like, oh, that's an amazing idea. Great. But if you can't raise money on it, it's, it's, it's very easy for people to like kind of placate somebody like, yeah, it's a good idea. Good. Off you go. Oh, cool. Do you want to invest? No, 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 no. It's uh, not for me. Then it wasn't sure. a good idea, right? You weren't excited. Yeah. So for me, it was super important to be hungry like I was with Bitstew and put some funding in if I needed to, but see if I could raise capital, just get people excited. 
Right. The result was actually really surprising. I had a target on our seed round of 1.5 million US. Mm -hmm. As I started putting it out there, people were really responding much more strongly than I expected. And I said, okay, I'm now, yeah, I'm now really onto something. I have to, I, I want to go bigger and release more, more quickly to meet this market demand that I'm really hearing. So extended it to 3 million, quickly filled that one up. And wow. then investors started coming to me, which was super nice. They, oh, I heard about this. I want to invest that past 4 million, four and a half million. Now we're at six. <laughs> and wow. so congrats, man. That's great. Yeah, it's been super exciting. I haven't had to put any in myself because we've always been oversubscribed. And so it's kind of like, well, sure. Yeah. Um, and now we're just taking on investors that have a strategic fit of some kind. Either there's media companies wanting to come in or there's creators or people that are well connected and trying to get, you know, value instead of um, just just accepting money blindly. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then how do you guys monetize the platform? Um, well, uh, that kind of gets to the general monetization model, um, which for us is, is quite nice. Um, I mean, if you look at emerging social networks, the hardest thing about creating a social network is if you don't have the network, it kind of sucks. For us, if we've yeah, got fair. one creator and one follower and they're connected, uh, there's value. And so it's not like we're a generalized content scrolling like Instagram where you have to have the social network. So we've got to, we can start making money off the bat. Um, for the creators, uh, if they accept tips, they get 100% of the tips that they get for their content. Um, so we won't take any of that. Uh, but if um, they create a paid channel, we will take 10%, they'll get 90%. Right. Cool. And then we offer what's called QP plus, which helps them run their business more effectively um, as they're, as they're getting more successful, more white glove service, uh, admin accounts, allowing people to post content on their behalf for the bigger creators. And that's just a flat monthly fee uh, for us to make money on. No, that that's really great. So I, I'm curious because you've, you've done this for a while. Um, how do you manage your roadmap of where you see the product going? And obviously, especially with some of the influencers that you have on the platform, they're obviously suggesting probably features as well. How do you manage what to build and not build from what you're hearing from your users? Because I think a lot of startups really struggle with that. And sometimes you can end up chasing these like feature requests and sometimes they get used, other times they don't get used. And, and that can actually really ruin your product and your roadmap. That's a, actually a really awesome question. And I don't get it. I have not been asked that one a lot. And so you're, you are spot on. Uh, I can tell your experience in being in tech yourself. Um, <laughs> oh, I've gone through this problem many times. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely tell. We have a... We have an opportunity, but it's also a problem. And and the opportunity is that the, the app is very relatable. Everybody uses messengers. Everybody wants to connect in social media. That's the opportunity, right? You, you show them what it is and like, I immediately get this. This is super cool. I want it. The problem is everybody's got an idea. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if you just did this, right? Because it is so relatable to everyone. Uh, and I have a personal struggle because I'm a, software guy by nature. I love building things. You tell me an awesome totally. idea and I go, oh, wow, that's not that hard to put in there. And you, you're so tempted to throw it in, but um, you really, I believe, and this maybe gets back to my experience back in customer support and QA, keep the product simple. I mean, I think 
the best products are the ones that just do a, do something and do it extremely well and then don't try to throw in everything in the kitchen sink. So what I've done was for launch, really listening to the creators and also the subscribers and say, okay, what's the, what's the minimum they want to, to be successful? Obviously you have to be able to post content message, control your privacy, all that stuff. That's our foundation right. of our principles. And then other stuff leave on the backlog and then kind of get your solid base and your foundation done. Don't be tempted to throw in everything. Really, really, really set what your MVP is, communicate it out early, have consensus from your market, uh, and then release to that. Then somebody goes, hey, wouldn't it be really cool if you did you know, X, whatever it is? And you go, all right, that is cool. Let me kind of circle that around this whole audience that we've got, have our few trusted creators and consumers try with them first and then expand out and then even test features, but don't go super crazy. And I think there's a balance for, for us. Um, we've taken a while to release this because we wanted to make sure that it's incredibly well polished. It looks beautiful. It's a consumer app that people are, are proud of to use and that creators are trusting their brands with. That's, that was really important to me that we take our time and do it right. Because a creator who's built up a following on another social platform is going to suddenly trust us with their brands and they're going to direct their audience to us and say, look, I'm on this really cool new platform where I'm offering something unique. And if we weren't we were kind of cheesy, we're not stable, we fall apart, we prototype too early, then suddenly their brand gets hurt because their audience goes, well, you recommended this thing and it kind of sucks. And that's almost the opposite of what you probably are familiar with in software, which is like prototype early, get it out to the market fast, see if there's product market fit and evolve until there is. For us, when we started showing it, the excitement was high enough. We thought, okay, we have some level of product market fit. That's not the issue. Let's not jump the gun and just throw something out. And we got lucky because starting it in 2017 and then really changing that prototype and listening and getting feedback, you know, back when I was doing the seed seed investment, even just a year ago, a lot of people are like, what is the creator economy? How do you know there's a market? Now it's exploded. And particularly because of COVID, you know, creators have lost the ability to go travel to these amazing places. And so they were looking for ways to add more value Ooh. and they were you know, stuck at home. And so I don't think COVID created a new market, but I think it accelerated the market by about five years pretty instantly. And now everybody gets it and everybody knows exactly. So what I'm doing, pitches now to investors and so forth. They're like, yeah, we know the problem. Why you, you don't even have to tell us. Well, a year ago I had to really, really tell. So yeah. So um, because we know the market's there for us to, to jump out with a product too fast, I think would actually be detrimental. And I see a lot of companies coming out of the woodwork and it's just like throwing something together in a few months, throwing it out there as quickly as they can. And the consumer feedback is like, this is kind of not really great. And we don't have a good option. And I think it underserves that market. Take your time and do it right in this case, because we know the market's there. So offer them what they're really going to want, um, even if that means taking a little bit more time uh, to launch it. Interesting. I actually think that's actually really good advice because you're right. You you read so much online, like get it, get something out, even if it's not very good as quick as possible. But in certain cases, that can crush your company before you even really have time to to get it out there and get feedback right because you're right like if you put it out there and it's garbage and 
the your customer's customer thinks it's garbage, you, you just ruin that relationship and they're probably never going to come back and try out your platform again. You're 100% right. And I've seen that on some of the platforms that have emerged um, out of the woodwork. I even got to doing some of the uh, pitches to bigger uh, institutional investors, I was talking to one of the really big ones. Um, and the feedback from the person doing it was, uh, you guys are an overbuilt product. You know, it's just, it's just too, you should have released something and thrown it together. And this is from a giant name uh, in the investment world. And I disagreed I, because I've been in front of the creators and what's happened now is so many products have come out to help support this creator economy as fast as they could that when I talk to some of the bigger creators, it's kind of funny. I'll get connected to them through word of mouth, which is a great thing for us. Again, totally. speaking to that quality, somebody sees it and goes, I've got somebody for you. And you know, so I was talking to somebody with, you know, 7 million followers and, and she looked at, you know, you could tell the call started off with like, oh, okay, I'm here because I was told to be, I hope I'm not a friend. <laughs> what do you have? And then I show it and I'm like, whoa, actually, wait a minute, this is different. I want to be on this. And they're like ready to sign up. And so if I didn't have, if if I took the advice of the big institutional VC and said, oh, simplify, it's overbuilt, they would have just looked at it and said, okay, yeah, you're just yet another that has come across my door that I'm not excited about. But because we really thought about it and took our time, um, and again, I had luxury to take the time that not everybody has, and I recognize yeah, that. One, I could build the software myself, and two, I, could, I didn't need to work for a living, so that does help. But the end result is still the same, like you said there are times you need to consider whether or not you have the market and, and how the market would react to something quick and dirty versus something polished. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is I, and you could tell me your thoughts on this is adding another week or two weeks or maybe even a month of polish. Like I think a lot of companies can do that. I'm not saying take six months or eight months or a year, unless you have the luxury to do that. It's just, I feel sometimes you spend so much time developing something and the UX isn't very good or the design isn't very good that if you just spent a little bit more time, you could take it from 50% to 80% to maybe even 90% better just by spending an extra, you know, few days or few weeks on it. Then obviously if you have the luxury of eight months, that's great or whatever that number is. But it's just, I think so many people judge a book by its cover and and apps and, and what they're using so quickly if it's not pretty they're not going to use it and that's just the reality of it right it is i will download apps for their app icon alone <laughs> like well yeah 100 percent, so, right because my thought is if you took time on that level of polish you probably thought much more through than that and i'm not always right but sometimes it happens and and i agree with you and, and you probably experienced this as well uh you know for certainly my first company you know, we always think our competition is right at our heels and they're doing exactly what we're doing and they're so much more well-funded and they're just going to crush us at any moment. But the reality of it is, it's not really that way. And if it was, no. maybe you didn't have an innovative enough product anyway. So for me, it's like, if I delay it by a few months and I lose, do I really have anything innovative or not? Yeah, um, that's actually really good so, advice. Yeah, so I'm not... And a lot of people, because it is so relatable, they say, well, what happens if, you know, Facebook copies this feature, Facebook copies that feature, somebody else copies, whatever, whoever it is. And I would say, I don't really worry about people copying features from QP. There's a lot of really cool stuff in there that people have, got, have said, why has anyone else done this? So they're going to copy. I worry about sure. when they have the same exact mentality and vision. 
right? Because if they're always copying features, they're always behind and they're always yeah. playing catch up. If they have the same vision, then they can outspend and move and, and pivot. But the big players don't have the same vision right now. I mean, their, their model isn't an unsuccessful one, right? I mean, you, we can all look at the big yeah. players and be like, wow, they're worth you know, 700 to $900 billion. It's not that they've failed by any measure. We're just taking a different approach, serving a, a market in a different way. For them to pivot and say to their advertisers, for example, hey, we've got this great new model where our users don't need you anymore. They're gonna be cutting off a very big revenue stream and taking a very big risk. It's better for the big company, which is not cash, poor, but they are risk agnostic, risk poor to see what happens and watch the market. Um, and this was a great eye opener for me with GE, right? Because GE wouldn't take big, massive risks on software, nor should they. Because, yeah. you know, if I start a startup QP and I take a risk on this path and it fails, nobody cares, nobody knows, nobody heard about it, right? Yeah. If a big yeah. social media company takes a risk on this path and it fails, there's it's making the news, people are getting fired, yeah. stock prices totally. are tanking, you know, and that's such, but what do they have a lot of? Cash, so why not just watch yeah. and say, okay, this is pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, cool, we'll just buy them or not, yeah, right? And exactly. so they buy your vision, vision, right? Yeah, we take the risk, they yeah. buy the vision yeah. if it works out or not. Yeah, yeah, that's actually really good advice, but sadly we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about QP and any other links you wanna mention? Absolutely. The easiest is just qp.me. Uh, so four letters, nice and easy. Perfect, Alex. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com.